Hi, welcome to another episode of Contemporary Philosophy Global Conversations here on the MANA platform. And I'm delighted today to have as our guest, Helen de Cruz. So Professor de Cruz holds the Danforth Chair in the Humanities at St. Louis University. And her work focuses on basic questions about how human beings deal with difficult, abstract topics, such as the nature of mathematical objects, the nature of God, and how we can think through those, those kinds of um, big questions in principled ways. She also takes very seriously the role of art and philosophy, uh, the, the relationships between art and philosophy, and, and how we can, you know, what our practices look like cognitively and uh, epistemically, let's say, when we, when we engage in those kinds of creative endeavors. Um, she's the author of numerous books and articles, and she's a special expert on the idea of disagreement, and particularly religious disagreement. Um, she's written interesting work on the nature of wonder and awe. I hope we can talk a little bit about that. Um, and of course, she's had a very distinguished career, so she's published in all the top journals, and she's taught at great places. She's taught at Oxford Brookes University, the Free University in Amsterdam, Oxford University, uh, the University of Leuven, and now at St. Louis University in St. Louis, Missouri. So welcome, Helen. It's a real pleasure to have you here. Thank you, John. Yeah. I, I wonder, um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about the relationship between, so you, you, you have this recent piece on awe, and wonder. And, you know, when we think about the role of awe and wonder in philosophy, obviously there's a relationship to, um, to religious philosophy, to religious reflections on the origin of philosophy. But even in Aristotle, for example, we see um, wonder as understood to be the, the beginnings of philosophy or the source of philosophy. And in your piece, you talk about the role of wonder in science, so that's really interesting. Maybe you could you could say a little bit about how you came to that and how you how it fits in your work overall. Thank you. Yes. Um, so I think that wonder uh, is a good entry into philosophy because it basically is the kind of emotion that everybody feels once in a while. So very often people will say, why, why should I be interested in philosophy? Why should I be interested in hearing what people who are long dead or even people who are still alive but living and working in philosophy departments, what they would have to say about anything? Like, why, why should I listen to it? Uh, but I think in a sense what philosophy does is it formalizes and it, um, it does in a way what we all do. Like sometimes you just sit around and you wonder, like, why am I here? Why is the world the way it is? Could it have been any different? Like, or, you know, it could be something that could be uh, brought about by external factors, like, uh, you know, say the pandemic, like you sort of wonder, like, wow, nature is so powerful. Look what, what's happening. Like the, you know, the planes are down, the, the, the Olympics are, are canceled. Like if you imagine the magnitude of this, 
and then you think, you know, we are not so powerful. Like there's a lot more out there uh, that we just don't have a clear grip on. And it's interesting to note that philosophy, I think good philosophy or, you know, philosophy acknowledges uh, these limits. So you basically start with the limits of human thinking. If you think about, for instance, uh, Kant's Critique of Pure Reason, it's a very, that's not a good book to start reading philosophy, like don't, don't start with Critique of Pure Reason or you will never want to read another philosophy book. But one of the interesting things about it is that the book tries very clearly to put limits on like, this is the sort of thing that we can maybe potentially learn anything about. And these are the sorts of things that we probably won't know the, anything about. Like for example, what's the origin of the universe and how did it come to be? Or does time have a beginning? You know, this sort of questions, like you can approach those philosophically and theologically, but ultimately you will never have a complete answer to those questions. So in that respect, philosophy does differ, I think, uh, although it's also continuous with things such as science, where you, know, you start with the explicit acknowledgement that human reasoning is limited and uh, that there's lots that we will never know. So you start by just you know, saying that that is the case. And now, okay, let, let's now see what we can do. At least that's how I see the endeavor of philosophy. Mm -hmm. So isn't, isn't it the case, so you mentioned Kant, and Kant has this project of understanding, you know, what are the scope and limits of human understanding? How, what, what, what's the proper object of us, uh, of our investigation, etc. And somehow that process of setting limits or drawing boundaries, how do you, how do you see that, um, relating to or being challenged by the emotion of wonder. So as you mentioned, sometimes when, when we have this, ex this extraordinary experience, right? So they are extraordinary experiences of wonder. And you mentioned uh, the idea of, of, of having a feeling that there's more to the story or there's more, right? So, there, so one, of the, one of the challenges of wonder is it seems almost to impinge on us and, and takes us beyond the limits or pushes us to think beyond our ordinary limits. So maybe this connects with your, your uh, recent piece on the prog progress of science and, and, and the role of wonder in the progress of science. I'd be curious to hear what you'd say. Yeah, I think that wonder is a motivating emotion, both for philosophy and hence the, the claim that philosophy begins in wonder. Uh, but also for science, uh, because, you know, as a scientist, uh, and this is something that the philosopher of science, Thomas Kuhn, uh, first brought up, like, you know, if you think about scientists as people in white coats inventing extraordinary new things, that's not how scientists usually work. Like scientists are just, you know, sort of kind of boring people like the rest of us. They just, you know, work on the things that are generally well established in their field. They don't go beyond that. They don't do anything different. And in fact, you know, if as a scientist, you try to do something quite different, uh, then very often your work will just not get accepted. And one example is uh, Alfred Wegener. So Wegener was a geologist and he looked at the map of the world and he saw Hey, isn't it strange that Africa and South America, they sort of fit into each other like a gypsy? You know what, once there was one continent and then they sort of broke apart. 
and people laughed at him like people actively you know they just they they were they thought this is this is just a completely bonkers idea uh, we just uh, you know how can anybody believe that so that's how science usually works but the question is then how do you go forward in science well at some point you get stuck and uh, i think this was the case for uh, you know explaining how uh, certain geological phenomena worked so it worked very well to say nothing ever moves, but you had all sorts of anomalies. So these are things like uh, the, the, the North Pole and the magnetic North are not the same. Like, how do you explain that? Why, why, why is there that difference? And then geologists slowly did come around. So they were perplexed and perplexity is an emotion that is related to wonder. And they were just wondering like, what's up with that? Uh, and because precisely because wonder is a kind of emotion that Draw, that makes you passive, right? You just, you sit and you, you, you're just quiet uh, and you just say, I don't understand this at all. So it pushes you out of yourself, out of your comfort zone, and it helps you to accept or to at least consider ideas that before you thought just didn't work. Mm. So I think that's the motivating force of it. Great. Yeah, I think I, I agree. I think that's, that's certainly... Um... It's a it's a it's a great connection between the role of wonder in in the history of philosophy and in the sort of practice of of science. I when we think about um, one thing that you're known for is your work in experimental philosophy, your interest in experimental philosophy, and I think um, that might be new to a lot of, of viewers um, uh, of this show. So maybe um, would you be able to tell us a little bit about the origins and nature of experimental philosophy and how it relates to traditional philosophy. I think that would be of great interest. So what is experimental philosophy? There is a really curious thing about the term experimental philosophy. So the term experimental philosophy was commonly used in the 17th century. So if you look at Google anagrams or something where you look at word frequencies, but experimental philosophy just meant science. That's mm -hmm. what, what people meant. Like you have philosophical ideas and then you put them to the test. Hence experimental philosophy. So in the 17th century, lots of people were experimental philosophers. So Descartes, for example, uh, was somebody who thought on the one hand, he said, I'm just going to shut myself up in my stove and then I'm going to prove that I exist, that God exists, that the external world exists. So I'm going to prove all those things just by thinking. But at the same time, Descartes was very experimentally oriented. So he uh, dissected an eye of a cow and he found that if the light falls into on the retina, I don't know, I'm not an eye doctor, but anyway, that, he, that the, the image is flipped. So then he wondered, okay, why don't I see the world upside down? So, so that's experimental philosophy. And Kant uh, is also known for, you know, system building, but he wrote a paper or a small book on volcanoes on the moon like what is, what is the origin of volcanoes on the moon like it's a volcanic activity on the moon um, so it was very common for philosophers in early modern time to be experimental but then philosophy became more and more an armchair discipline and it started losing that experimental bent and i think one of the reasons is that slowly you had the origin of science so i interrupt you for just as a point of clarification, maybe you could explain to our viewers what what philosophers mean by calling philosophy an armchair discipline. 
So I think it's it, it's a oh, sort yeah. of a technical <laughs> term. Definitely, yeah. So armchair just means that unlike scientists, philosophers typically, although I, as I will clarify, experimental philosophers are an exception, but typically philosophers do not go out and do experiments. They just basically look at the works of others, come up with their own ideas, and that's that. So that's what they do in the armchair, like in the comfort of your armchair at home. I love it. Like this, one of the reasons I got into philosophy is <laughs> that uh, it allows you to do that. Um, but at the same time, so you had this, uh, this, this split, this emerging split between the sciences and then whatever was left was philosophy. Uh, but slowly, and this must be around like the late 1990s, the 2000s. You have philosophers such as uh, Joshua Noob, and then later uh, philosophers like Edouard Machery. And they were again interested in experiments, like because very often philosophers will say these things like the folk belief. And with the folk, they just mean ordinary people. So they say, for example, the folk believe that if you have free will, then, this is, this is a classic example, if you have free will, then it can't be the case that your free will is determined by outside circumstance. Like it has to be libertarian free will, which means that if there is something, suppose that there's a long course chain of events that makes me do what I do, then what I'm doing is not truly free. Now, interestingly, uh, you could test that. So you could just ask people, you can give them, and typically what experimental philosophers do is they don't ask, okay, free will, is it libertarian or determinist? Or, you know, people don't know all these words, it's going to not work. So you give them a little story such as, okay, there is a supercomputer and the supercomputer can predict anything that happens by looking at the past and then sort of looking at what happens in the chain of events. And there is a certain guy called John, maybe not John, <laughs> there is a certain guy, and he is uh, planning a holdup of a bank. And sure enough, in 2021, he walks into the bank and he does the holdup uh, and so on. Now, the supercomputer predicted that he would do it. Did he freely do it? And it turns out that the majority of people say, yeah, sure, you know, he could still do it freely, even though the supercomputer predicted it. So in fact, and even though the computer predicted it using all the events that came before, so it seems that the people have no problem thinking that free will could be fully determined. And that's interesting because as a philosopher, you can't just make claims like, oh, ordinarily people believe this or that. You have to really go and test such claims and see if they hold up. So that's, I think, uh, the strength of experimental philosophy, that it allows us to do that. So in your own work, um, when you think about disagreement, for example, um, do, you see, do you see a role for, maybe you could explain the role for experimental philosophy and disagreement. So why would, let's begin with just the question, why would philosophers take disagreement as a philosophically interesting phenomenon, for example, and, and uh, how should we make progress on, on understanding the, the, the role of disagreement in science and ordinary life? Disagreement is a fascinating topic, I think. Uh, so I'm really glad that philosophers uh, take an interest in this. So um, disagreement is interesting because 
imagine you have two people who are totally perfectly reasonable people and the one person and they have the same evidence they went to the same school and so on and the first person thinks that god is just one person uh, let's say he's muslim and the other person thinks that god is three persons let's say he's a christian uh, the question is, can they reasonably disagree? Like, is it reasonable for them to continue to say, okay, I know my friend, let's call him Hassan, or uh, is a really reasonable person, and he thinks carefully and so on, and so do I. And so, you know, I think it's perfectly fine that I go on believing that God's three persons, and he can go on believing that God's one person, and we, you know, are both fine with that. So that, that sort of, and I think that many people have this idea that, particularly within the religious sphere, that people can reasonably disagree. However, there are philosophers uh, such as Feldman and Christensen who say that if you are confronted with a disagreement of somebody that you think is as clever as you are, that you should lower your confidence in what, they, what you think. So, and he gives, Christensen gives a famous example of the restaurant. So you go to the restaurant and we're in the US, so you have to pay tips. And you sort of work out how much each person owes and how much tip. And I work out that it's say $35. My friend works out that it's $37. It seems reasonable for me to, to recalculate that because maybe I made a mistake. If I think that I'm just as good at mental arithmetic as my friend is. So that's the puzzle in philosophy is the question of, can we reasonably disagree? Do you have to lower uh, your own um, confidence that a certain right. belief is true? Right, and what's your answer? What do you think? Well, that I was afraid that question would come. <laughs> like, I keep on changing my mind about this every few years, which is maybe not bad. Like currently, I am what you would call a conciliationist. And a conciliationist says that, you, so there's many, many different ways in which philosophers map out what conciliationism is. So some people say that you should give the other person equal weight, their view. And so one problem with that is like, suppose that you say, okay, what this other person thinks I should give it equal weight to my own belief, because after all, I have no reason to think that she would be any less uh, informed or intelligent or whatever than I am. If I think she's just as intelligent as I am, then I should give it equal weight. Uh, but I think that's problematic because it sort of, it discounts a lot of other evidence that we have, like, except for the opinions of others, I do have like experience and, you know, memory mm -hmm. and all these other sources. And I think those are also important. So I do think that we have to give some weight to, uh, what our peers tell us. Even if we consider them full peers, I do not think we need to give it equal weight. So that's why I'm sort of a moderate conciliationist. So I think you, if you have peers who reasonably disagree with you, that you do not take that seriously, and it needs to be sort of part of your bigger overall picture of the world. So I think there's genuinely a difference, say, suppose a Christian in the 12th century growing up in Italy, surrounded by other Christians, like she never sees anybody else, hears anything else like, or you have a Christian today in the US, very diverse society, you have Muslims, atheists, Buddhists. I think that's a very different picture. And I think that mm. should inform once, I think it ought to normatively play a role in how you form beliefs. Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. That's great. Maybe you could um, tell us a little bit about your views of the practice of philosophy. So one thing I like to ask is um, what your hopes are for the future of philosophy and what you would, um, how you would, uh, obviously advice is a, is a tricky thing, but how you would um, encourage or maybe um, counsel a, a young person who's beginning in the study of philosophy. What, what, what uh, maybe you could offer a, a few words to um, this, this person who might be watching right now. Hello, interested person in philosophy. I'm glad you're potentially watching. Yeah, I, um, I think there are so many different routes into philosophy. So my personal route into philosophy is actually, uh, as an undergraduate, I did not uh, major in philosophy. Uh, I, and, and I knew now, actually, if you have to want to get to grad school now, you practically and probably would agree with that. I mean, except very exceptionally, most people who go into grad school now are already philosophers uh, with a philosophy major. But I think there are many, many different roads into philosophy. And mine was uh, through uh, archaeology and world art studies. So I have that uh, as a major. Uh, but I got lots of, um, I took a lot of electives. Uh, there were uh, Muslim philosophy, uh, Indian philosophy, uh, Chinese philosophy and African philosophy. So those were sort of like, and that was really interesting. So my first um, serious introduction to philosophy were non-Western philosophical traditions. And, and that was, I think that has a continued influence in how I think about philosophy. I think it's very diverse sort of practice, even in the sort of fundamental way that people approach it. So we started this conversation by saying philosophy builds starts in wonder but i think for some people it genuinely doesn't like they just have a mm. bone to pick so i mean i didn't mean that in a bad way so for some people philosophy is just arguments like mm. and and the way they write papers and do philosophy is like this person said that what is that how that is just wrong and terribly wrong and i'm going to tell you how it is wrong so so that's one way of doing philosophy the other way is like, wow, this is such a cool, weird thing. I want to learn more about it. So that's more like the wonder base. Or you have people who are like, they build big systems. So there's so many different ways of approaching philosophy. So I think when you start philosophy, it's good to start with an approach that you resonate with. Like don't take something really difficult or something lots of difficulties getting into it could be something that really resonates with you like i was talking to my son's chess teacher and he has read only two philosophy works namely in rant um what was it atlas shrugged or something I've, I've never read it so and that's something by nietzsche i think thus spoke zarathustra and he really enjoys those two works. So I, I would say that I'm not a natural Nietzsche fan, but you know, after many years, I slowly sort of got into Nietzsche and I think I get a better understanding of what he, you know, what his project is. And you know, now I sort of resonate a bit with it in a way that I didn't before. 
But I think you shouldn't start with something that absolutely doesn't fit your temperament or something. And you know, usually some philosophers are just easier to read than others. Like say Hannah Arendt is very accessible as a philosopher, mm -hmm. but Kierkegaard probably not, maybe, I don't know, maybe for some people. <laughs> so, so you can just like, one thing you could do is just watch podcasts. There are so many philosophy podcasts and sort of see like prima facie, am I interested in that also? And then, you know, just read something by them that is accessible and then go from there. Fantastic advice, Helen. Thank you. So I like, I really appreciate the conversation and it was great getting to know you. And um, thank you so much for, for, uh, for joining us on, on, uh, on our show. Thank you. Yeah, thanks very much. <laughs>